Kick the jukebox, it's so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the jukebox, kicking a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh yeah! Hello and welcome to Kick the Jukebox. Kyle Gordon, hello. Louis Perlman, hello. We've just been hanging out for the last hour and a half, yeah. so I'm we are warm. I'm pretending like he's like just walked into the room <laughs> yeah. and we're starting. But this is nice. It's been a while. I know, too long, too yeah, long. To our like five fans out there, yes. Uh, apologies. The the podcast takes a while to edit for sure. And then uh, I think it's worth noting that we had our first music rights issue because of the Kanye stuff, right? Um, and there's bots that like, you know, scan the internet for stuff that they don't want up. Uh, you know, yep. they just analyze waveforms and apparently Kanye's more protective right. than other artists. So yeah. I'm going to use slightly shorter tracks this, this month, um, right. but you can always listen to full tracks on our Spotify listen along list. Yeah. Uh, for examples, and hopefully we won't run into that problem again and it'll take a little faster to get this podcast out there. So my apologies. And by the time it reaches your ears, it won't be like a whole new presidential administration. Well, hopefully it will. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god whose side are you on kyle this is a staunch i'm very staunchly right wing as everybody knows oh, this really? is the podcast oh mm-hmm. no our first conflict <laughs> uh, well we've debated you know like the merits of like lindsey buckingham's like playing before so yes, it's not our true. first conflict yeah, yeah very fair and like and the and the pro con lindsey buckingham argument i mean that's you know that go that that's pretty. That divides America as much as like left right. That's true. It's yeah. yeah, and in a way, it's a left right argument. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Kai Kai Gogo, Louie. <laughs> I don't know if that's nice. Is it bullying you to no. say Kai Kai Gogo? No, uh, Is, I get, I'm like giving you a nickname that I you didn't ask for. I was just thinking. I've I've <laughs> for some reason I've always gotten so many nicknames. Yeah. Throughout my life, um, which is funny because. There's a guy at work who he's like a very eccentric work type of guy. He 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 calls Buffalo Chicken Buff Chick. And, <laughs> That's like, and I, every call, t- I call comic books Kobos. <laughs> Kobos. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, every time he leaves, he gives a peace sign and goes, deuces. <laughs> uh, and he's given me the nickname of Kyle Guy. Not Kai Guy. Kyle Guy. That's that's really that's that's odd. Yeah, and my roommate calls me. I don't even remember. It's like Kai Kai Guy. I don't even. Know. That's that's. <laughs> but that's I've always better. gotten I've always gotten nicknames. I I very rarely get nicknames because my name is already a nickname. Right. Because my name is actually Lewis. Yeah. Not that I like it when people use it. Yeah. Um and. Also, people call me Lou, mm-hmm. but I started calling myself like 12, 13 years ago, Lou Balls as a joke. <laughs> and people people have modified that. Some people call me Lou Balls. Some people call me Lewis Balls. Yeah. Some people call me Lou Bells, yeah. which I think is really funny. Anyway. Well, yeah. not to jump the gun, mm-hmm. but there is a, um, a Devo... A demo kind of track before the world. Sue Balls. Yeah, called Sue Balls. Yeah, yeah which maybe I was um, yeah. thinking of. Lou Balls. Lou Balls. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, Sue Balls is a really good song. I love that song. Oh, my God. Is that, that, because that's where they're like, uh, for one drink of her toilet water. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, know, <laughs> I know so much about Devo and everything that I don't know about Devo, Kyle knows. Yes. Perfect, so, uh, like, uh, puzzle piece matching of knowledge here. Yeah, like, this is actually one of the episodes that I think we've been really excited to do yeah. from the beginning. Kyle, 
What have you been listening to in the last little while? So I have been listening to um, an artist named John Martin, mm-hmm. who is a British... I mean, you could call him like a British folk artist, but he... I mean, he's, he's made music that shatters that uh, description. Mm-hmm. He's been a very kind of genre-bendy guy. Really interesting, like genius like unquestionable like musical genius and i was listening to this song off his 1973 album solid air it's called over the hill so maybe we could listen to it yeah let's listen to a clip that's short enough that our podcast will be taken (laughs) off the internet of over the hill over the hill reminds me a lot of um but it is different from but like in, in a lot of ways he reminds me of kind of nick drake uh-huh um, why, why do you why, where do you think the comparison is well just really inventive mm-hmm. um but also virtuos virtuistic uh yeah i don't know playing. what the right word yeah, that is right? but i i totally understand what you're virtuosity, saying virtuosity but i want to say virtuous you could say virtu- that his his guitar playing displays a lot of virtuosity correct yeah. yes <laughs> there we go <laughs> that's um, my job on this podcast is yes. to correct your grammar kyle yes <laughs> um but as i think both of us are kind of fall in this category um i don't necessarily love virtuosity for its own sake but in service of the song um yeah is oh and i think he and nick drake kind of do that both really well like they could noodle for hours and they also write songs that are really complex Mm -hmm. and very different in terms of chord progression and structure Mm -hmm. however it still maintains like a pop sensibility like any i think yeah any like it's undeniably beautiful this song like you could play it for anyone and it's just like yeah really really gorgeous yeah there's a lot of um really really nice uh, emotion in the guitar playing Uh uh-huh and i think that that comes from the fact that it actually is somewhat experimental there's it's it it almost feels like it's a progression of a of a drone right um which is great and takes it from the realm of folk into a more experimental realm like ethereal ambient sounds and he, mm-hmm. he plays a lot with that on this album and then his next album too mm-hmm. um one world which is like oh so incredible and, and then i just was reading up on him and in advance of this and i learned that he is one of the first artists who would sample himself on stage and use loops interesting i didn't know that yeah yeah, yeah. apparently he did it using tape recorders huh. and that really makes a lot of sense if you listen to this music yeah and, and I just came back from um, being a crazy person at New York Metro Beatle <laughs> Fest, where yes. I was on a panel, and it was really exciting. It made me feel like a real music muckamuck. <laughs> but this sort of stuff certainly reminds me of, like, 
what the Beatles were doing with a song like Tomorrow Never Knows mm-hmm. and maybe the next progression of that. Yeah. And then, of course, this is an early example of the fact that a lot of different types of musicians were looking towards sample culture and, mm-hmm. and loop culture. Mm-hmm. But it, it really took, of course, my favorite cutie little boys in the Bronx in the late in the mid <laughs> mid to late seventies to really um solidify that as an actual musical movement. For sure. But it shows that people around the world were thinking about it, recording yeah. artists. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And he worked on his next album he started working with like Lee Scratch Perry and yeah. like doing dub stuff and tape loops. Like mm-hmm. that was a big part of like, you know, what he was doing going forward. And, I mean, he's a really interesting guy. Uh, he's not as well-known in the U.S., which is so interesting. Yeah, I'd never heard of him before you brought him either. in. I hadn't. I, I just discovered him, like, a few months ago and b- can't stop listening to him. Well, two things. One, like, every British art, like, he is revered. I mm-hmm. mean, he's passed away, but he's, like, yeah. revered in the U.K. Um, by, like, Eric Clapton and, you know, a bunch of really seminal, like, British artists. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of, like, this album, I would say, like, his early stuff is more traditional folk, like, British folk, but on this album and his next album, mm-hmm. it's like, he he was just years and years ahead. And then I, you know, I've been collecting a little bit of his vinyl, and then I, I just saw, you know, a John Martin album from the 80s mm-hmm. in, like, a record store, and I listened to it, and it was, like, really bad. Interesting. Because he, after, like, I think in the late 80s, he... Or no, in the late seventies, he stopped using acoustic instrumentation yeah. altogether and yeah. only would use like synths. Mm-hmm. And he's just so such an amazing yeah. guitar player. Yeah. And like I think a lot of his songwriting comes from I mean, he, he, he used his ability to influence his songwriting. It's really poppy and like well stru- like interestingly structured, but I would say this is his sweet spot. <laughs> it, it reminds me of uh, this friend I had in college <laughs> who said to me once, I don't like songs with guitars. Yeah. And it's like, why cut off your nose to spite your face? Right. You know, there's different tools for different things. Right. And unfortunately, I think what happened with a lot of these artists, and this you can point this more towards a more pop sensibility as well as like the production uh, and the tools of the eighties didn't actually serve their songwriting. Right. And, exactly. and, and he probably wanted to push himself, uh-huh. you know, but this, this track is like definitely uh, really, really gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And then, and you know, as you said, like he started working with Lee scratch Perry and mm-hmm. he got signed by Chris Blackwell from Island records, mm-hmm. who is primarily a reggae mm-hmm. uh, producer and later he went on to sign Tom Tom Club, mm-hmm. who I will always loop everything back to them <laughs> because if I can't talk about Tom Tom Club, I have no musical knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> or if you're not talk, co- talking about Tom Tom Club, you're not really having a conversation. It's just words <laughs> are coming out of your mouth. <laughs> Sometimes I feel that way. Like, the amount of time I've spent thinking about Tom Tom Club and Talking Heads, if I thought about it on my like my own like artistic career i would i would have like fucking egotted by now it's like fucking ridiculous but it's such as my lot in life but yeah. but anyway you can see the the musical connection in that i think chris blackwell was really interesting in expanding what dub and reggae was as a as a as a genre mm-hmm. and this actually fits into it because mm-hmm. it certainly does owe something to that drone of dub mm-hmm. that comes from that era of of, of reggae uh-huh. that at the time was so experimental 
and so influential mm-hmm. yeah. on so many bigger acts and was you know coming out of Jamaica and, and really t- very much if not taking like the more popular American music world by storm a lot of bigger artists into the 70s were listening to all of that oh, for sure and, and especially in the UK like it was, absolutely yeah. yeah so it's cool you know and he's definitely one of these artists that it seems like musicians like more than the listening public like and he influenced a lot of people like i learned that um there were concerts of his work where like levon helm participated Mm -hmm. he did an album where other bunch of members of the band were on the album Mm -hmm. and that's a very interesting connection yeah right because the band were really quite pop oriented Mm -hmm. if you really listen to their stuff but they sure loved a good experimental side sort of side angle right you know like richard manuel was really complex as a keyboard player uh-huh. it's cool stuff yeah. yeah and so i'm definitely gonna keep digging digging into john martin i would recommend you uh check it out too and i, I i'm just interested to see you know what his I, I wonder what his legacy is with the british public mm-hmm. as opposed to just other british artists and i mean clearly you know the band other american artists really respected him too but mm-hmm. i mean no, he's not known here. No, he, I've not heard of him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like he's one of these songwriters that uh, a lot of people, if, if you talk to people in certain music circles, would be like, of course. Right. But the general It's public, either of course or I've never heard of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's an interesting connection. It sounds like he led a rather dark life yeah. he battled with alcoholism yeah i think that was reflected in his songwriting i feel like you can a lot even... of drug use i mean he's talking about yeah he's talking about yeah. a lot of drug use yeah. and maybe this was a little too unpalatable for the general public yeah that may be and then on the flip side of that is is the track i want to bring in yes um, yeah yeah the which... opposite of yeah no darkness in, in an interesting in an interesting way though so the track I, I i brought in to talk about is this partridge family track i've really loved for years mm-hmm. i want to talk about called um, point me in the direction of albuquerque mm-hmm. let's listen to a sample please Buddha Records, don't take away our podcast. She was a little rag doll. Her hair was wild and tossed. And I put my arm around her because I knew that she was lost. She didn't seem to notice that anyone was near till suddenly she turned to me and whispered in my ear. Point me. Okay, so this song, I've always been drawn to this song uh, since I discovered it maybe about six, seven years ago when I was really, really, really getting into my like dense and academic study of bubblegum music (laughs) as a genre. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I really, really like this song is because 
it is very restrained, mm. actually, when it comes to the rest of the Partridge family's songbook. Uh-huh. This was written by this guy named Tony Romeo. Love it. Who was a bubblegum <laughs> song, songwriter. Yeah, you know, he wrote he a lot. He couldn't write anything other than bubblegum music with that name. I know, <laughs> right? And he tried to be a recording artist, and but he found much more success. You know, over 200 of his songs were recorded. But really what he's best known for is writing I Think I Love You. Mm, So What Am I So Afraid Of? That Mm. was his big hit with the Partridge family. And the Partridge family are, if you look at Bubblegum in historical (laughs) contexts, and I say that like I'm embarrassed, but I'm not, because (laughs) it is a genre and it's an interesting genre. They're a second wave Bubblegum group. Right. First wave really is the Monkees and Mm. the Archies and the Ohio Express and all Mm. those guys that were late 60s. And then Partridge Family was early 70s when they had really commodified the process. Partridge Family were supposed to be the cow sills. Right. Uh, Wait, they were literally, the show was literally supposed to just be the cow sills? This is what happened is the guys that developed the show wanted to make a cow sills tv show and they went and they interviewed all the cow sills and they and this is actually smart on their part they were like nope these guys are too musicy and we don't want to do this with them they predicted and i i agree that this would have happened that they would have rebelled the way the monkeys had and they would have gotten out of control mm. because they were this pre-existing entity mm-hmm. they were writing songs together oh wait so the the tv execs said the councils were too musicy yep the, oh. they were like we won't have enough control over this they went and did some preliminary interviews with them and they were like this is not palatable enough. This is not packageable enough. Mm. And that's right. And the cow sills went on to write these like concept records. Right, 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 right. Do you know about this? No, no. They wrote an album in like the, the, the early 70s, right around the time that Partridge Family was around, that's like all about the book of Revelations. <laughs> yeah. Like that's, they were like. Um, well, thank God they didn't do the show because they never would have. Maybe they never would have read it. Exactly. That's, I got to check They that were out. like real people, the cow right. sales. Yeah. They were, they were like actual, they were an actual musical family. And right. what these guys wanted was a, a sitcom musical family. Right. So, you know, so they hired David Cassidy, who was Shirley Jones's stepson. Mm. They, you know, the, the sitcom was not experimental. It was mm. not subversive. Right. The Monkees was. You right. know, The Monkees was a really wild TV show mm-hmm. uh, sometimes. Uh, <laughs> this this show was not. And, and, and it's really, unless you grew up with it, it's, it's not fun to watch, uh-huh. I, in my opinion. It's like kind of, it's, it's very much for kids. Well, that's what I was saying is that you know, I grew up, I'm 25, but I still grew up with the Brady Bunch. Sure. I, they, reruns. They reruns all the time on yeah. like, you know, Turner Classic Movies or whatever. I yeah. would come home and I, 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 I watched a lot of Brady Bunch, but I ne- the Partridge Family was never on TV. They and never had reruns of the Partridge and Family. And if there had been reruns of it, you would have been like, yeah, this is exactly the same as the Brady Bunch. <laughs> yeah. Like, you would have been like, great, you know. Yeah. Um, Music-wise... Uh, you know, also, this is, this is, Bubblegum really softened its sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the stuff coming out of Buddha Records, which was Partridge Family's 
Buddha Records were the uh, record label behind Ohio Express and 1910 Fruit Gum Company. Oh, okay. And a lot of that was these, like, New York session musicians who, like, actually played really hard. Right. And influenced, you know, the Ramones and Iggy and the Stooges. And who all claim a lot of that as influence. Oh, yeah. Um, This was not that. Yes. This was really cheesy. Right. And the reason why I like this song is because... This is, it's very restrained. Mm-hmm. And David Cassidy, who just died, mm-hmm. you know, and who did not live a particularly happy life. He had a lot mm-hmm. of health problems and he never found success uh-huh. as a solo artist. And he really resented a lot of the Partridge family stuff. Right. I think the reason why is because he n- didn't work with enough people who saw in him what they saw in him when they had him do this song. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a sad thing because they clearly dialed him down. Right. And he gives a gorgeous performance. And this song is, uh, and I'm not really that familiar with the rest of the Partridge family, like catalog, but like this one, he's like, I mean, it's a big, it feels big to me. Like, especially the chorus, like full, very full. Yeah, it's gorgeous, yeah. right? And the chorus is very strong. Yeah. And the verses are good, too. Yeah. It tells a really cool story about yeah. this, like, um, vagabond, <laughs> like, um, adult sort of street girl yeah. who he puts on a bus to take her home. Yeah. And that's all she really wants. And And, like... From an actual practical standpoint, that's not what you should do with a girl who's mumbling <laughs> yes. on the street. Yes. Take me to Albuquerque, you know, point me point me home. Yeah. But uh, from <laughs> sort of the way the song makes you feel, it makes a lot of sense. And it's like right. quite a beautiful, it's quite a beautiful sentiment. It's like right. about like exactly. this dude trying to help this other person. Right. You know, which I really like about it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and Partridge Family wise... You know, out of all this stuff that I was, like, really listened to a lot, you know, when I was getting into bubblegum music, I could maybe recommend three or four Partridge Family songs. Mm-hmm. But that's not, like, you know, I, I'll, like, defend Ohio Express till my dying day. And <laughs> yeah, I could yeah. recommend, like, you know, oodles of Ohio Express, uh-huh. but in all their different forms. Uh, and But, like, Partridge Family, it's like, nah. You know, it was really watered down. And I think this track really pushes the project in a surprising mm-hmm. way. Interesting. Yeah. So what, like, as the bubblegum expert, for for this era, what would you say, like, who are the, um, equi- like, is, like, Bay City Rollers and that type, like, does that fall into that category? Or the Carpenters, I feel like they're a little more, they would, I wouldn't really call them bubblegum, but they're kind of in the same world a little bit. And I, and I mean, talk about, like, having, you know, people who have, like, a great, who, who cool musicians will constantly cite the Carpenters or, like, you know, cool musicians will constantly cite, like, girl groups or, like, you know, Ohio Express, things like that. Like, <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that cool musicians cite Ohio Express. I mean, other than Joey Ramone. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, but that's <laughs> such a weird thing that happened that yeah. people don't really know that that's what happened Fair, you know yeah. like people still i still talk to people that are like blah 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 fucking 1910 fruit gum company and i'm yeah. like what chip on your shoulder do you fucking have yeah, with, these, yeah. with these this weird one hit wonders non-project yeah. from the late 60s that <laughs> right. gave us such treats <laughs> yeah. as one two three red light <laughs> yeah. and simon says but um yeah i mean this is what happened this was the progression that was really interesting mm-hmm. is Th- those earlier projects that were really the height of bubblegum, the golden age, which was 
the Buddha record stuff, mm-hmm. and then like very much the Archies, mm-hmm. uh, they predicted a softer sound mm-hmm. that then became mainstream in the 70s. They right. really predicted the 70s sound. Right. Uh, and the Carpenters, I'm not going to say the Carpenters were listening to Bubblegum and were like, this is what we should do, uh-huh. but it certainly paved the way for them to become a successful group. Right. All the 70s vocal stuff right. owes a lot to bubblegum charting right and then what was interesting is at the time uh bubblegum still existed but it became a little more it it was this progression where it became glam right so there was this stuff which was really the tail end of the uh, initial bubblegum projects Mm -hmm. and then right around the same time as this we were getting mike chapman and nikki chin producing the suite Mm-hmm. you know out of england yeah. and that's what bubblegum became oh, and and the early you, think that's, you, you draw that line from like to like those early like british glam bands yes, and stuff very much so because like early sweet mm-hmm. an early sweet demo is an archie's song interesting and then and they recorded um like a song uh called like lollipop man um <laughs> interesting yeah and that was early bubblegum and then that became uh, and I'm so excited to make this Spotify playlist because we've gotten into this tat- territory. That became Wigwam Bam. Do you know that song? No. Yeah, like Wigwam Bam, which is very much a, a bubblegum. Is that sweet? Yeah, that's the sweet. Mm. And it's like, Wigwam Bam, wanna make you my man. Like, it's like very much, um, very much uh, in the realm of that, like, sort of almost like a schoolyard chant chorus. Interesting. And then that became like Fox on the Run. Like mm. that's the progression. And Fox on the Run is like pure bubble glam. Interesting. Um, and, you know, and, and uh, the uh, actual glam guys like Jabriath and um, Bowie and mm. T-Rex, T-Rex, they yeah. really sneered at the suite. Uh-huh. But if you listen to the suite now, that's like really gorgeous pop music. Yeah, all I know from... Is it the sweet or sweet? They're they're the sweet. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, is um, what's their big song? Uh, Ballroom Blitz. Ballroom Blitz, which is also really uh, you can still hear that bubble gummy that that yeah. opening that's like, okay, guys, let's go. Yeah, yeah like that's yeah, yeah. very to me in the spirit of like a nineteen time fruit gum company single. And and then at the same time too, we've got Bay City Rollers, S A T U R D A Y, which yeah. is like such a bubblegum chant. Yeah, right, right, and, right, and right. Took all, you know that was seventies. The pieces rock are music. coming together in my brain. This is the fun. This is the fun. Yeah, <laughs> this podcast. Yeah, yeah, and um, and all that music for me is like or like Gary Glitter and stuff. I mean, come absolutely. On, yeah. You know, come on, come on. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, that is all. Um, very much from a bubblegum background but what happened at the time is all that music was so critically you know disliked because mm-hmm. it was for kids and it was right. a sellout and they you know the none of the bands were real right so uh, they really distanced themselves but behind the scenes it was all the same guys interesting um like black betty mm-hmm. um you know that song yeah um, you think, yeah that was written by these bubblegum songwriters huh. uh and that was a buddha records release that was um interesting. Or that was super k productions which was um jerry kaznis and jeff katz and i apologize if i said that wrong because i always say their names wrong and they're <laughs> like my heroes yeah but they were the producers on 
90 Cent Freaking Company, Ohio Express, and a bunch of other just little single bands. Professor Morrison's Lollipop, <laughs> uh, the Lemon Pipers, who were all just studio bands, basically right. with different vocalists and all, right. a lot of the same songwriting teams. Oh, that's amazing! Yeah, cool. bit of a tangent yeah, from Partridge no, Family, yeah. but yeah. This, this is yeah, this is the this is these are the fun conversations of like providing context and like yeah, you know, the the most the the fun of all this, and I think our shared taste is like drawing drawing those connections like uh you know finding you know weird influences that you know you wouldn't assume yeah yeah and and i need to definitely just shout out for any listeners that we have retained over this long gap yeah a lot of my opinions about this come from a book that was really really influential to me that's called bubblegum music is the naked truth which drew the lines for me. Do you have it here? I do. Can I borrow it? Yes, you can. <laughs> yes! You can borrow my copy of it. And it's really one of my Bibles. Um, and I've written to the editors of, of it. And we're in, me and the editors are aware of each other now, which is, for me, very exciting, as the book awesome. came out in the 90s. Oh, cool. So, yeah, so it was edited by... by Dark History of Pubescent. Pop, yeah, pre, yeah, the, yeah. Bubblegum music is the naked truth. The dark history of prepubescent pop, from the banana splits to Britney Spears, edited by Kim Cooper and David Smay. And I also have to shout out my friend Colin Beckett, who I'm not totally in touch with anymore, but was just really he created my taste in music. I have to say that. And uh, back in the day, and he lent me his copy of this book. And um. Also, shout out to Becky Ebenkamp, who uh, were like social media friends, who wrote some really gorgeous essays for this for this book. And this book just draws the lines between. They do this really cool bubblegum top 100, which is based on the punk top 100 that's in um, the the punk uh, the punk diary. You know the those punk diary books. There's the punk diary and the post punk diary mm-hmm. that are yeah, and it's like. It's like the Bubblegum Top 100. I'm showing it to Kyle live, but like number one is the Archie's Sugar Sugar. Number two is um, uh, uh, Kaznitz Cats Super K Productions, which is who I was just talking about. Number three is ABC by the Jackson 5. But then we go down... And number 10 is Mbop by Hanson. Oh. And number 11 is The Ramones. Right. Which, to me, like, really sort of opened up this whole pathway of my brain that I didn't understand And you guys before. also got to get this book and see the art yeah, on this chart. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Ch- uh, yeah. is so cool. Yeah, and then number 13, and this was from the 90s, this book, but right. number 13 is Spice World, which yeah. I definitely put into the camp of Bubblegum. Right, for sure. And number 21 is Tommy James and the Shondells. Uh-huh. And Tommy James is considered a more serious 60s songwriter, mm-hmm. but he falls into that idiom. You right. know, he sang Moni Moni, which right. is very much a Bubblegum song. Um, you know, and then we also have, like, as we go down... You know, we have, um... Wait, 50... Is that Rootin' Tootin' Raspberry? Is that... I think that's a commercial. Yes. Yeah, yes. right? Rootin' Tootin' Raspberry. <laughs> yep, yep. And, um... And, uh, number 46 is special guest bat villains from the Batman TV this show. This is awesome. Yeah. And so it just brings a bunch of cultural influences together in one place that 
it was really defined like literally who I am as a fucking human yeah. being. Like this is a real like Louis identity episode between talking about this and Devo. That's right. And then it's you know, and like number sixty six is Debbie Gibson. Yeah. Which makes sense. And number sixty nine is specifically Riff Randall <laughs> from Rock and Roll High School. This is seventy three is the Powerpuff Girls. You know, like so it totally makes sense, right? Wow. Like yeah. this is all but this is all the same stuff. Right. If you look at it through this lens, and I, I would, I love, love the Beatles do... come in at a clean eighty-seven, and it's not the Beatles that come in; it's the Beatles cartoon. Oh, because that was a really early example of marketing a group through a cartoon. Interesting. And those Beatles cartoons, once again, this is very common in the world of bubblegum. The actual dramatic material is unwatchable. Huh. Those cartoons are garbage. <laughs> but then. At the end of each cartoon, there's a version. There's a Beatles song playing with cartoon versions of the Beatles playing the songs, and that's really charming. Yeah, and that's the same as the Archies yeah. and the same as the Partridge Family yeah. as well. Just to swing it back. Yeah, and interesting. This is a good connection to make to our next segment because Kyle and I have been doing some searching, uh-huh. and you know, this is a connection to all this bubblegummy stuff led to a lot of the early punk movement Mm -hmm. we found this old college radio tape from the year that are we not men we are devo was released which is our album we're going to talk about and we found these two dudes were viewing the album online or not online on the air (laughs) yeah right after they had listened to it Uh and it's interesting to hear their their take on it yeah these Um, two you know, late seventies punk rockers mm-hmm. talking about Devo, and uh, they had some interesting takes. Yeah, I think they went to like a liberal arts college <laughs> yeah. somewhere in like uh, you know New England. And uh-huh. anyway, here here they are on the air. And you've just heard. Orgasm Addict by the Buzzcocks, which is one of our favorite songs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's wonderful. Rocking guitars, awesome message for me as a young Mm 19-year-old, and just no, no bullshit, no holding back. That's right. It's just like a pure song of like longing and like dealing with repression. It's pretty good. And coming. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The orgasm, the most primal of urges. Yeah, I'm a young boy in the 70s. Uh, that, that gets me going. Yeah, it's it's hard. It's really hard <laughs> right now. This energy crisis, it's making us very sexually pent oh, up yeah. and frustrated. Oh, yeah. yeah. So we just got back from the record store. And speaking of uncontrollable urges... We just bought two new records that we're going to review live on the air. Mm-hmm. We bought Devo's Q, We Are Not, Are We Not Men, my apologies, We Are Devo, and we bought the Sex Pistols, Never Mind the Bollocks, Here Come the Sex Pistols. Now, first of all, I have to say, one of these albums is clearly superior to the other. No question. I'm Rico. I'm a young guy. There's only one clear choice for me. And that's Anarchy! That's right. The Sex Pistols. Anarchy in the UK, which just makes a lot of sense with things right now. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Exactly. They're they're talking, you know, they're stripped back, no bullshit, 
you know, this isn't Kansas. This That's is right. fucking Sex Pistols, pure rock and roll. Oh, just gets me going. And and we, you know, really the need to tear down society and start anew, right? And that's what this album's all about, you know. Her name was Polly. She lived in a tree. Maybe we all should live in trees, you know? It's deep, right? Yeah, yeah. get up in the fucking tree and just start screaming! Mm-hmm, that's right. Start screaming. Now, on the other side of things, uh, let's get into this this uh, this Devo record. Uh, yeah, you thought bleh, it was... Bleh, bleh. You thought it was gross, right? I don't want to hear a bunch of nerds moaning and groaning about society if they don't... If they don't have, you know, they don't say it with passion. Well, they don't have balls. They don't have any I balls. Mean, we just listened to Orgasm Addict. Yeah. And then here's this song, Uncontrollable Urge, and we don't even know what the urge is. Yeah. How are we supposed to figure out what the urge is without knowing what the urge is? Orgasm Addict is so direct, you know? Hey, and you know what? This is me, Rico. These are the kind of guys I go to a show and I'm gonna beat their heads in with their stupid glasses. That's right. And I'm gonna beat them to a little pulp. There's all right because they're nerds. They're nerds. And we are punks. Mongoloid, punk rock. You don't talk about. That's a good impression of them. Yeah, like their this little is what, what I hear. To De- when I hear Devo, I hear. I can't turn my computer on. And 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 Rico, I have a question for you. That's yeah. very important. Do you think that Devo? Are fascists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I think they're. I th- listen to look at their music. They're talking about even Mongoloid. They're talking about mm-hmm. different, you know, uh, like race groupings, mm-hmm. and they. Uh, and also, you got to be a fascist if you're gonna destroy satisfaction like that and turn it into a sounds like a weird. Factory. It does. It does. It sounds like they manufactured that song on an assembly line. Exactly. What did they do to that Where's song? Where's the raw power? Where's the raw power that we love so much yeah. as young boys yes. in college? And you're gonna call them a, a lot punk of band? Frustration. Yeah. Why they even call them a punk band? Now I had to pump that in my ears. I don't. I don't. You know. You know. All that I really feel about this album, Rico, is it just reminds me of why I don't get laid enough. It's like a young man, you know? Exactly. I hang out with these guys, I'll never get laid again. I know, exactly. Like, stay away from them, you'll never get laid. Like, it'll make our chances even worse than they already are because women don't understand us, you know? Exactly. Yeah, this album reminds me that women don't understand us, (laughs) but the Sex Pistols album, it makes me think that, like, women will totally get us and will want us to be their boyfriends. And if they don't, we'll just scream about it. Yeah. So my final thoughts is Devo should go back and grab the talking heads and go jump off a bridge somewhere. Yeah, they should all just go away. Go away forever. Absolutely. Go back to Ohio. Go back to Ohio, Devo, where you belong. Oh, wow. Whoa. That was so interesting to listen to. Yeah. They had some controversial opinions. Yes. But, you know, we got got two sides of the, uh, of, uh, two sides of the kind of punk divide there. We had the snooty, you know, punk purists. Mm -hmm. And then we had the like raw, grimy, uh, down in the dirt punk guys. And none of them really understood Devo. No, none of them understood Devo. And you know, when this album came out, a lot of people didn't understand Devo. Very true. It's interesting 
listening to Lance speak there, mm-hmm. he accused them of being fascists. Yes. You know, not when this album came out, but a few later albums, Freedom of Choice, yeah. Rolling Stone accused Devo of being fascist. Yes. Did you yeah. know that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was familiar with that accusation. Yeah. Um, And they, I mean, famously, they were also accused of being very sexist. So I think they also kind of got, they, they I mean, it's just a clear, people didn't understand them and I, and I guess the fascism came from I guess their like message of supposed conformity and yeah. like uniformity and falling in line and their imagery like you could see yeah. as kind of like retro futurist mm-hmm. uh, like fascist yeah. I think that's sort of where we're leading here. And I think it's actually sort of an important thing to talk about. So here's this band who initially were not a band. Initially, they were an art project from Kent State that were started by Mark Mothersbaugh, Jerry Casale, who were Kent State students. They met there together. Mm -hmm. And their brothers, um, who were both named Bob, weirdly (laughs) enough, Bob Casale and, and, um, and Bob Mothersbaugh. And the Jim Mothersbaugh, the third Mothersbaugh brother, who developed a lot of their early synthesizers and then went to go work at Moog, which is really cool. Yeah. And continued to work with the band. Yeah, he yeah. worked. I think he continued to work with the band. Even after he left as their drummer, he was kind of their tech guy. And especially as they got more synthy, mm-hmm. um, you know, th- later in their career, like he was, I think, kind of the their go-to guy for that type of stuff. Yeah, and, and their synthesizer sounds were always really from left field comparatively right. to what a lot of other bands were doing. Mm-hmm. But they didn't start as a, as a music project. Mm-hmm. They started basically as a performance art project that used music. Mm-hmm. Not that it was theatrical per se, but they called themselves Devo, the De-Evolution Band, mm-hmm. and they all had characters on stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Mothersbaugh was Boogie Boy. Yeah. Uh, was one of his characters. And there was spelled also... with a J. Yes, both with a J. <laughs> and then, who was sort of like a na- naive little boy. Mm-hmm. And then there was another character named China Man. And I- I'm going to address this. <laughs> yeah. Um and another character, there, there is someone wearing an ape mask as mm-hmm. well. And they read a book that was like a crazy religious pamphlet <laughs> that was called The Beginning is the End that preached de-evolution, that believed that we were regressing as a society back to our primal state. just witnessed the Kent State shootings Mm -hmm. and they believed that the hippie movement did not work for them. And, you know, so they, Devo was birthed out of a very traumatic event in Mm -hmm. the history of the 60s and Devo was very much a reaction to the ineffectuality of of a lot of 60s movements. Yes, for sure. And I think in the same way that a lot of punk was a reaction against 
you know, hippiedom in general, mm-hmm. um, you know, instead of peace and love, it became a manifestation of anger, mm-hmm. but they manifested it. Their man, their, their anger was manifested in a lot in way more as like cynicism yes. and, um, and humor and humor. Yeah. Yeah. They were always really funny. And I think that's why a lot of comedians like us really like that. Yes, for sure. And they, as their career went on, they did a lot of video pieces that incorporated a lot of humor, mm-hmm. including working with Lorraine Newman, who's like really funny in some of their videos yeah. as well as, you know, an early SNL actress. Uh-huh. And it's like, I, I just think it's interesting to bring this up because they were really more than anything sort of this controversial multimedia art project before we even had the terminology to call them that. Right. But, you know, they I don't think they ever really went moved forward thinking, we are a band that plays out, we will get a record contract. Right. So that's where they were at. And they had already been around for about seven years, six, seven years by the time that they received notice from the music world. Right. Moving into talking about this album, which is their first album, David Bowie and Brian Eno had received some of their demo tapes and basically had a, a bit of a, a fight over them. Mm-hmm. And they there's a story, I don't really know how true it is, it's sort of a rock and roll story, that they went to their debut show that was like their New York debut yeah. show they had been playing in Ohio. I think Iggy Pop was there too. Yeah. yeah, and I and apparently one of them said during their set, I saw them first because <laughs> they were so taken with them. Uh-huh. And they were already such a well-constructed concept. Right. They were wearing uniforms. Yep. They already they had uh, at the time what they were doing which was really cool is and they they still do this uh, this is sort of the classic version of the band is they wear these yellow paper jumpsuits mm-hmm. and then underneath they have black shorts and black shirts and specifically during their anthem they tear their jumpsuits off mm-hmm. sort of in a very robotic fashion and their movements go from being very uh, st- stoic and robotic to being uh, much more sort of like light and free and like mm-hmm. almost primalistic. times and even though now i I know the shtick Mm -hmm. and uh, even though now they're 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 older men Mm -hmm. there's a real effectiveness to Mm -hmm. that release of them being freed from these jumpsuits right so that's sort of where they were at at the time and they were very sort of grimy Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of early devo you can listen to i I recommend hardcore devos volume one and two Mm -hmm. and there's also uh live the hardcore years Mm -hmm. uh that is great live examples of their early stuff. And they were really into pushing synthesizers in ways to make a lot of what they're doing very droney. Often they would go from being really melodically tight to being very discordant. Right. But so these guys saw them. They hadn't been signed to a major label yet. Brian Eno made a decision to pay to 
have them record in Germany mm-hmm. with him. And the, Eno fronted all the money, thinking they will get signed to a label, which they did. They mm-hmm. got signed to Virgin. And he paid for all the recording time and for all of the co- the travel costs, the time to get them over, food and lodging. He paid mm-hmm. that all out of pocket. Mm-hmm. And according to, you know, Casale, uh, later on, they just were like at odds with him the uh-huh. whole time. Right. And he really wanted to push them in a more melodic, synthesized way. And they were not having it. And it's so interesting. They just like really bit the hand that fed them. And that's sort of, that's sort of the history of them for their entire career. And I think it's so interesting because yeah, some of his like synth lines did make it into Mm -hmm. the album, but it's interesting to think what it would have been. And, And I understand their impulse too, because you know, a lot of the songs that they had on that first album, they'd been working, you know, they had, I could understand them being defensive about their product Mm -hmm. because it had been so meticulously crafted Mm -hmm. and it had weathered all the naysayers, you know, and you know, uh, people who misunderstood them. Mm -hmm. So I think when they went forward with this first album, they were like, first of all, we just want to present this product that we have meticulously crafted yeah, over for years. years they knew what they were doing and and they very much had like an artist statement right you know behind what they were doing and yeah. i think also too like i would imagine from producers in general and then brian Eno, brian Eno in particular he's a he's a guy who will take a raw product and like make it a it's as much a brian Eno album as it is a u2 album or whatever you know what i mean like very whatever. much so so yeah some, some so much that bands that actually weren't really great or right. impactful, who had right. really a lot of success with Eno, you right. know, like James, for example. Right. Like, later on, you yeah. know, like, that single, Late, is so good, uh-huh. but, like, right. yeah. And so I could see them wanting to, because also a part of their aesthetic is sort of this sparseness, the spaces in between each instrumentation. It's very, yes. there's no blending. I mean, each part is like a cog in the machine. Imagine Eno wanting to take it in another direction. So mm-hmm. I understand their, I can understand their resistance to his influence. So, so what ends up happening with this conflict is that they recorded this whole thing. Apparently, they really fought the whole time, mm-hmm. and then Bowie, who was not available, who I think was filming a movie, yeah, at the time, he sort of came in as mediator because he really liked Devo and, and you can definitely see the Bowie Devo connection in uh-huh. terms of the music. And he like cleaned up the album. Yeah. And removed a lot of Eno's influence uh-huh. from it. So even though the album credit is produced by Eno, 
Bowie had a lot to do with it. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So it's interesting. They they just I think they had a rough time with this one. Yeah. And something that's interesting about Devo compared to a lot of the other bands from this era that I like. There is so much live material to listen to mm-hmm. and so much video content of yeah. them. Yes. I, feel, I feel like I've listened to and watched more live Devo than <laughs> any of the other bands that I really like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this album does end up being a good representation of what seemed to have been the live Devo right. experience at the time. Mm-hmm. And certainly I was not there. And if anybody, you know, wants to like chime in and chat with us about that on social media or whatever i'd be more than happy to be proven wrong about that but it seems like like the album did turn out to be a good representation of them but i think they sort of already just from their first experience with this brush with mainstream success came away from it being even more cynicized towards the process right i don't know if that's a word but you guys know what i'm saying (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah yeah no i could totally see that and i mean it was yeah it was their impulse already it was kind of like devo against the world in many many yeah because they kind of hate the world yes they do they yeah. do hate hate the world in its current state they yes. want us all to just become apes yeah 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 or know? they or maybe they don't want to but they yeah they feel it's inevitable it. yes exactly. yeah it's going to happen yeah yeah so when uh, i saw them the first time it rained like hell and jerry casale during the show said wow, the Republicans even control the weather now. <laughs> and yeah. in a way, that's a funny joke. In a way, it's like, oh, Jesus, guys. <laughs> this is like height of Bush era. Yeah, yeah. right, right, right. That's yeah. so funny. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, this album, more than any other, I think they they captured the essence of both their musical aesthetic and their, their worldview. Mm-hmm. Um, and musically, I think, you know... To, kind of segue a little bit like I, I i could see like Eno not being an amazing fit because i think their sound is mechanical but in like an analog way you know it's like pre-digital mm-hmm. yep. and it's like they sound like a machine in a factory not in a you know it's not computers their songwriting is not craft work Right. Uh, they, if you listen to their chord progressions, despite the fact that they're so strange and their songwriting structures, they owe a lot more to the Rolling Stones, yes. who they cover on this album. Yeah. And to, like, garage rock. Right. In my opinion, uh-huh. stuff like The Music Machine uh-huh. and uh, that, that sort of stuff from the 60s mm-hmm. that they all grew up with. Right. You know, uh, uh, a song that was recorded right before this album that was just a single tra- a singles track that sold really well for them in England that's called Be Stiff. Yeah. That sounds like a 60s anthem more than anything. Right, yeah. And going into this album, I think that this is really just sort of the dream of 60s rockers mm-hmm. sent into a, like a washing machine yeah, yeah. and it comes back all mutated, right. you know, beautifully mutated to, yeah, yeah, coin yeah. What, to use one of their phrases. <laughs> yeah.
track from this. Hands down, Mongoloid. Interesting. Hands down. I like Mongoloid. It's not my favorite, but yeah. I like Mongoloid a lot. Why? Why Mongoloid? You know who else's favorite track Mongoloid is? Chris Franz and Tina Weymouth's favorite track from this album. Interesting. They love Mongoloid. Yeah, they they apparently when this album came out, they listened to that one over and over yeah, again. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, setting aside the fact that the term Mongoloid. Actually, I don't think they're using it in like an the, they're not using it to describe because the the term mongoloid derives from mm-hmm. in like sort of an antiquated like social Darwinian uh, view of the world as in like there's the mongoloid race and the Anglo you know whatever race I don't know exactly but like yeah you know but you I know, think they're using mongoloid to describe just an alien I want to address this because we are two white dudes yes and Devo plays a lot in um, ne- negative racial imagery. Yes. And uh, Mongoloid is certainly one, one example of that. And, yeah. you know, and as I said before, they have this character named China Man. Right. And, you know, uh, they have a song called Bamboo Bimbo, yeah. which is sort of about, like, the atrocities of Vietnam through mm-hmm. sort of this warped Devo-esque lens. Right. And... I really feel I don't I'm not going to make excuses for them. They're right. definitely a product of another time. Yes. If we had a project like this, I would not trade in this imagery. Exactly. And I know you wouldn't either, Kyle, cuz you're great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're a nice boy. <laughs> but I I do feel like they were very intentionally trying to push buttons. Yes. And a sometimes it it led to larger thought patterns and discussions happening around this this imagery and this usage of it at the time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think it just comes off as a little like we're kids and we can get away with this. Like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give them a total pass for all of for this. For sure. You know, and yeah, Mongoloid is somewhat problematic now. Yeah. Yes. And just you know, it gets me thinking like, you know, especially, you know, speaking from now in you know, March twenty eighteen. Yeah. I mean, it's tough to think of a time, especially then, when the left was the anti-PC by by adopt like you know mm-hmm. they were they were being sarcastic mm-hmm. and they were mocking racism for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's not acceptable now. We know that. Sure, sure. But you have to remember in the context of we are going to piss off. They, they. I think as much as they wanted to piss off like Southern rednecks, even more so they wanted to piss off like buttoned up conservative middle class yeah. middle america that um it just the, the the dynamics have shifted you know very um, much so where yeah. you know um so like they're the the it's so much a product of their time too because they are i mean and especially um you know like this song especially they are making fun of um like the middle class man who just brings home the bacon you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah this was an interesting time i was thinking about this today in prep for this mm-hmm. this is an example of this alienated white man uh-huh. music which is interesting yeah. for the late 70s and mm-hmm. i really fit this into the same lens as like people like david byrne was writing like this at the time yeah and then earlier, you can trace this sort of dissatisfaction with mainstream society back to a song like Carol King and Jerry Goffin's Pleasant Valley Sunday, which they wrote for the <laughs> Monkees in the late 60s, which is about mm-hmm. suburban unrest, basically. Yeah. 
if society wasn't working for these straight white dudes who wrote these songs, mm-hmm. it means that it was literally working for nobody. Right, right, right. And that is so interesting. Mm-hmm. And I've always felt such an affinity for this because as a kid growing up and knowing that there was something different about him, being a queer gay kid mm-hmm. growing up, I really identified with this type of songwriting because mm-hmm. it was like, I very often felt I was being a robot going through the paces of living this life that wasn't actually the life I should be living. Mm-hmm. He wore a hat. He yeah. had a job. Yeah, he brought yeah. home the bacon. <laughs> so no one knew yeah. that deep down right. inside there was something that was off about him. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's so much how much I how I feel about my place in the world. So much so that, you know, and this was a, ultimately nothing I'd do now. But when I was like 19 and I was really into all this stuff... I wore a t-shirt with a tie every day of my life <laughs> because my statement was, I'm just like everyone else that's, wearing a tie. Wow. Yeah. yeah that's really cool. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> that was like my little art project. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then I like, it was like for like a year and then I like took off the tie. I like had enough of it. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's a great example of, that's, I mean, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kyle. It's nice that you think that because a lot of people were like, yeah, we went through the tie phase with you. Yeah. you know, like, well, that's yeah. good. That's, you have to, I mean, mission accomplished. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, people like have to suffer through your youthful, uh, uh, like act of nonconformity and it doesn't manifest itself always in the most obvious ways. Yeah. And I think Devo is a perfect example of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not, not shout out on our podcast just for fun, but ask Alana Fishbein at some point about my tie, <laughs> tie phase, phase. And she'll tell you about it. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, but also, um, so Devo is, it's operating on so many different levels. Mm -hmm. One is this, like, biting social critique, but then also, like, I associate this with, like, my cool uncle. Sure. Like, Mm -hmm. he was like, this is hilarious, Mm -hmm. and it is a really funny song, and the imagery is is. so funny. It is. Brought home the bacon. (laughs) I mean, that's, like, the best line ever. Ever, I mean, it's and I think that's what makes it all work is that they were always laughing at themselves. Yes, they had a good sense of humor and and they understood how absurdist this all was. Right, and like this is my like my dad and my uncle like this is like a point like uh, this is more like I listened to this song as a very young kid Mm because it's just like a fun family in joke mm-hmm. you know <laughs> that's interesting i wish that my family introduced me to this i had to discover all this on my own yeah a lot of a, a lot of my uh, a lot of my, my uncle had pretty good taste my dad's taste is can be questionable but this, <laughs> that's this, fair. this, this is uh, <laughs> usually he's pretty good but but this one this one he he they, they both nailed it <laughs> so so you your favorite is mongoloid yes uh, definitely, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, my, I have to say that my favorite is Uncontrollable Urge, because yeah. it just has a really special place in my heart as uh-huh. to where I was when I first heard it, uh-huh. but my other, like, deep cut favorite is Comeback Joni. Oh, okay, yeah. I want to talk about Comeback Joni, just yeah. for a few seconds. Yeah. So do you know what that song's about? Do you know? No, have you read? I don't know. That's a song about how life was better under JFK. Oh. And Joni was uh, uh, accurate, they're, they're like was Johnny, a, right? Yeah, they're yeah. actually saying Johnny. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Johnny, Johnny, and they're talking yeah. about John F. Kennedy, oh. and it's sort of the sentiment about how everything went to shit after he was killed. Interesting. And it really has become such a different. It just sort of becomes like a rave up. But if you know that about it, it's actually a really passionate, sort of beautiful, strange. 
And I love the drum part on that yeah, song. Yeah, yeah. It is so good. <laughs> of a tangent here but uh this brings up a good point about just the drumming in general on this album is like i mean you don't hear i mean it's like nothing else i mean it really is like the perfect encapsulation of um like their sound and aesthetic mm-hmm. and, because he is not playing so with so much rock music like it's either you know like it's you know you know we all know the classic drum rock drum beats and rock drum fills but these are weird like it's like each drum like he never plays the same part like two it's almost as if he's not playing the ki- like two parts of the kit at the same time it's like absolutely like especially on like satisfaction oh my god yeah so those are our two favorite tracks which is great the reviews of this album felt like there was filler in it, some of them when it came out. I don't feel that's the case. No. Just to sort of address these tracks a little more quickly, Uncontrollable Urge is like a rock rave up. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty much Misty Mountain Hop. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, just like played by robots. Right, exactly, yeah. yeah. And then we've got their cover of Satisfaction. That's a statement. Yeah. That's a statement. And also, like, really kind of has a weird swing to it, considering. Yeah. And then Praying Hands, which is really good live. Love that song. Yeah, and theatrically, Mother's Ba would do this thing where he'd raise his right hand and yes, his left yeah. hand, and it's it's really theatrically cool. Space Junk, which is kind of ethereal. Yeah, and very their aesthetic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then we've got Mongoloid. Oh, and then we've got Jocko Homo, which we need to talk about a little bit, because that's That's one of their first songs, right? Yeah, Yeah, that's one of their first songs they wrote, and that's the one where they say, Are We Not Men, We Are Devo. Live, when they sing that, and you sing it back to them, you really, you, all of a sudden, the concepts of de-evolution go from being kind of a funny put-on to feeling like it's a real thing that is happening. And that's why yeah. I could imagine them getting the label of fascist yes. because they literally are forcing the audience to be, like, yeah. respond robotically, and I think, I'm sure they were conscious of that effect. Definitely, and for me, and I think for Devo fans, mm-hmm. it doesn't make me feel like I'm conforming to a non- Nazi party. Right. It, what it makes me feel like I'm conforming to is the fact that inside we are all primal apes. Right. And we will all really do what we want in the end. Right. And that's, you know, there's the rules of de-evolution that they have that are, you know, one of them is conform or do not conform. It does not matter. Right. Which is very nihilistic, but also kind of funny and great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and that's an idea that they played with for years and years in their career. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got Too Much Paranoia, which is another good example of like the white male... <laughs> like isolated and then gut feeling slap your mammy Mm -hmm. which is interesting because uh that 
This song is normally paired live with Smart Patrol, Mr. DNA. Uh-huh. And the whole thing together feels like the movement of like a mini rock opera. Yeah. And it feels very much like this song is the release to Smart Patrol, Mr. DNA. Mm. And it's interesting that they waited until the second album to record that because they were all written at the same time right. as sort of a, as a piece of a larger whole. Right. Yeah. And then after that, we've got Come Back, Joni, mm-hmm. which is great. And then we've got Sloppy and Shrivel Up, which both kind of, to me, feel like codas to come back, Joni, (laughs) sequence-wise. And I guess the album gets a little meandery with the last two tracks. Right, yeah. They're not standouts, but they... I can see what you're saying. Yeah, but that being said, they still fit the vibe, and you certainly don't turn the album off for those two. Yeah, so, I mean, overall... This album has stood the test of time. It's now much more well-regarded. Oh, yeah. They went on tour recently and played the whole thing through. Yeah, I heard about that. Uh, it was I, I saw them do Freedom of Choice uh, instead of this one. So all the way through. So they did another tour of, of, of Freedom of Choice? They did two nights, and the first night was uh, Are We Not Men, and the second night was Freedom of Choice, and I chose to see Freedom of Choice. Interesting. Uh, why was that, if I may ask? Or be- just schedule? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know why? It's because I really wanted to hear Snowball. Played live because that song really like makes me cry. (laughs) So that's why that's like Devo's only sweet song, (laughs) and I really like it. So that's why I chose. That's really the only reason. But this this album's really stood the test of time, and has proven to be a big influence over like you know this is another example of like the right people. Uh You know, like you know who loves Devo, and I don't love these guys, but it's interesting. Is Pearl Jam. Yeah, interesting. Yep, they love Devo. Nirvana. And that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Nirvana loves Devo. Yep. And it's like the people who love Devo. Well, first of all, because no one ha- ever did and has since sounded like Devo. Mm-hmm. So it's always surprising when you hear the people who are Devo fans. Yes. Like, well, I mean, the most obvious one is Neil Young. Oh, and, yeah. Like, who recorded that's a whole, with Devo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like... I Michael, mean, Michael Jackson was a big Devo fan. Right. Like, yeah. you couldn't get far... Like, th- these people are... You can't get farther away from Devo. Mm-hmm. And I think what it is is that when you have such a clear vision and aesthetic mm-hmm. and you just let yourself be weird and be yourself yeah. uh, and, like, you you know, turn that into pop music, everyone can like it because it's weird for everyone. <laughs> yeah, they were all encompassing. What a nice sentiment for us to you sort of end our discussion about Devo on is really yeah. like, and that, this is something that I think we try to do as as comedians and as artists is we really try to revel in our own interests, hundred percent, and and be weird for the sake of celebrating our own inner weirdness. And I'd rather see something weird and different than something virtuosistic. Yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. You know, you like, know. I want to see pure you do you, even if it's, you know, hard to follow or whatever. Like, I want to see something different. That's the biggest thing for me. And Devo is the best example of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to connect it back to everything, it's like, there's David Bowie and Iggy Pop and Brian Eno seeing Devo. I think it was at Max's Kansas City. Mm-hmm. It was either Max's or CBGB's, but I think I'm pretty it sure it was Max's. Yeah. And they said, I saw them first. Right. And, you know, and, and very similarly, the way that we started working together right. is I was doing this weird Pee Wee's Playhouse-like show at the mm-hmm. Magnet <laughs> with my comedy partner. And 
you were one of the only strangers who I didn't know who we met and you like approached me and were like, I totally get what you're doing. Yeah. And I really like it. And that's, you know, led to us having our dinky podcast. You didn't sign me for a record deal, Kyle. <laughs> I'm really mad you didn't I, front us recording in Germany. You were like, I'm going to pay for us to go to Germany well, and record an album. you see, the, the, when I saw <laughs> APT33, yeah. I was in the audience and I said, I saw him first. You did. And luckily, you weren't having a fight with anybody. Yes, exactly. I said <laughs> no one else my, gave two I said shits. it to myself. I said it out loud, and then I turned, and no one was sitting next to me. So Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And because David Bowie wasn't there for you to fight with. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting. Um, and that's the way that you connect with artists, and that's the way that influence works, and it happens. And mm-hmm. that's, that's a beautiful thing. Yep. And speaking of which, Jerry Casale dated uh, Tony Basil. And Tony Basil is, for those of you who do not know, in her 70s now. She had been in the L.A. arts scene and culture scene for years before she recorded Hey Mickey, which was her big hit. Mm -hmm. Hey Mickey was a um, Chapman Chin song, who Mm -hmm. were the producers of The Suite, Mm -hmm. um, that was called something else because it was written about a a woman. um, Mm -hmm. uh, And she changed the song to Hey Mickey Mm -hmm. because she was friends with Mickey Dolenz from The Monkees. And she she comes from a choreographer background. Uh And she dances with Davy Jones in the movie Head uh, in a, like, really strange sort of surrealistic Broadway musical number and that to the song daddy's song. Interesting. And then she had this career as a choreographer where she hung out with a whole bunch of the kids in Los Angeles who were the early poppers and lockers. And she became an early breakdance choreographer. And then she fucking dated David Byrne (laughs) and choreographed and danced in one of Talking Heads' music videos, dumped him, (laughs) dated Jerry Casale, and Devo ended up playing backing for most of her first album. Yeah, and two Devo songs are on that album, and we're going to listen to one of them, and Kyle's never heard this. Yeah, let's take a listen. And um, I think you're going to really dig this. Pity you. Mm. Yeah. So, what did you think of that, Kyle? That. I, sorry to uh, uh, disappoint the listeners who were looking for a fist fight, but <laughs> I I loved it. Uh, it was cool. Like very like late Devo. Mm-hmm. You know, like you can definitely see where they're gonna go. Mm-hmm. Um, in the video, you see like cool cool hip hop, like early hip hop, like mm-hmm. African bombada feel. Yes. Um, which I love and. Yeah, it's kind of funky, right? Very funky. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love it. But like sparse in what I mean, I don't know much of Tony 
Basil's, mm-hmm. th- you know, uh, aesthetic, but um, she was into the new wave shit. Yeah, new yeah. wavey. Like, I, I mean, if anything, like Mickey, like kind of sparse, strip back, but mm-hmm. like uh, funky and like kind of get down to the strip it down to the studs, but in like a new wave um, and utilizing like you know synths and stuff like that. Yeah, and she comes from this dance background, right? And this which is, is so ri- you know rhythmic, yeah. and clearly she has uh, her focuses rhythm and like raw rhythmic you know sensibility yes yeah it's music to move to right and so is mickey right mickey you know is based on um her like love of like cheerleader yeah choreography right. right so yeah this is sort of the other end of that and this feels sort of experimental yeah in a lot of ways but it shows that Devo had such a good pop sensibility and all they needed was like female singer to make it feel more like a pop outfit. Right. And also at the same time, I want to mention this before, but I think it's relevant to this. You know, Devo wrote a song for Jermaine Jackson. Really? Yeah, called Let Me Tickle Your Fancy. What? And it's really good. Well, because so, they were really influenced by a lot of R&B, too. Like, absolutely. you know, on, uh, it's funny, I read this thing, it's like uh, the cover of Freedom of Choice, mm-hmm. that album art was their version of like the temptations yeah like wearing all matching suits mm-hmm. and kind of like you know standing in a line so but like it's like you know they wanted to be especially on freedom of choice which is kind of this era yeah like they want to be like the temptations but like robots yeah robot temptations <laughs> yeah and just more proof that all music is just music and right. that influences stem from everywhere if you are a music snob, you're really doing yourself a disservice. For sure. You know, just just listen to stuff that you enjoy and follow those tangents, you know, because that's really how you find the next thing that is really going to, like, make your heart sing. Yep. And I think that all of the stuff we've talked about today is an example of that. Like, this episode, more than others, has really run the gamut from talking about, like, dub music and um, early reggae and, and folk and ambient, yeah. you know, all the way through to like 60s bubblegum into 70s into punk into, <laughs> you know, the new wave into like sort all of All the things pop. we like. <laughs> yeah, but it's because we like all the things. Right. Yeah. You know, like there's <laughs> right. very little we wouldn't cover on here. Right. And if it's good, it's good. If it's cool, it's cool. If it's weird, it's worth listening to. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And uh, on that note... Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Kick the Jukebox. You know, follow us on all the social media platforms. You can find us. So, yeah, so the next album we're going to do is a little more modern for us, and it's still a 20-year-old album. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, we're going to discuss Weezer uh, and Pinkerton. <laughs> We may have a special guest, but we'll confirm that later. Huzzah! So get excited for that. So, you know, I've been Louis Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. And this is Kick the Jukebox. Kyle, always a pleasure. Every time. See you on the flip side, listeners.